Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. Welcome to ITE Talks Transportation. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. This month, our topic is safety. To be more specific, the safe system. And here to discuss it is Robert Wunderlich. He's the director of the Center for Transportation Safety at Texas A&M Transportation Institute. Robert, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Bernie. It's great to be here. Good to have you. I mentioned our specific topic is the safe system, but there may be some people who are listening to this who aren't familiar with that. So why don't we start with the basics of what is the safe system, please? Bernie, that's a great question. And I think we're all trying to still figure that out. I think one of the things that I've been working uh, with Jeff Paniotti on his uh, Road to Zero committee is sort of demystifying the whole concept of safe system and what does it mean and what does it mean here in the United States? I think there are three really strong principles that can kind of put the safe system in perspective. One is we're trying to design a system, a transportation system, that reduces opportunities for mistakes, but recognizes that mistakes are going to occur, that the users of the system are not always going to get it right. They're not always going to follow exactly what the signal or the markings or even good practice is, not necessarily intentionally, but just because humans are prone to error, but that if we've minimized the opportunity mistakes and recognizing that they occur, when they occur, we're trying to minimize the consequences in terms of human health and safety. So what we're really trying to do at the end is if everything doesn't work like we'd like to, we want to still have a system that where you don't get penalized by a serious injury or death because you made a mistake. As you know, but not necessarily all of our listeners, ITE has taken a leadership role in advancing the safe system practice in the U.S. But I'm curious, how is focusing on a safe system approach different from what transportation professionals have traditionally done to improve safety? First, I'd like to say I think transportation professionals have always held safety paramount and believe that we have both a moral and ethical obligation to protect lives while providing a reliable transportation system. Secondly, I think many of the traditional approaches and the countermeasures that we've applied and the things that we've tried to do to improve safety fit right into a safe system. This is not all new stuff. This is not coming from outer space. This, a lot of it fits right in. I think the biggest difference is that we're changing the perspective. And I'd also like to say, look, I'm not the world's leading expert on safe systems, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm an engineer who worked for many years in the municipal environment, trying to improve safety, trying to improve the environment for people on a daily basis and implementing operations and design changes. And now I work on doing safety research and trying to transfer that, the findings and the techniques into practice. That's really what I'm doing. I've just been able to spend some time thinking about how a safe system approach might be applied in the U.S. So I think we're all 
still finding our way here and what this means. But to me, the biggest difference is that instead of depending on designing to guidelines or to standard practices or manuals, we view safety from the perspective of those three key principles, reducing the opportunity for mistakes, recognizing that they will occur, and then minimizing the consequences. We're thinking about it in terms of principles and then implementing countermeasures which try to achieve those principles. And we recognize that, and as we go through this, that it really shifts the focus onto safety and that we may decrease throughput, that we may decrease the number of vehicles crossing the floor, or the number of pedestrians or the number of bicycles. We may limit that. We may limit user choices. They can't cross the street anywhere they would like. They can't turn left anytime they would like. We may limit user choices. And finally, I think the final thing is that we do this proactively and comprehensively. A lot of our safety practice in the past is finding a problem through whatever technique, and we've got some new techniques that are really pretty sound now, but it was finding a problem and fixing it. I think this turns the a viewpoint on its head a little bit and says, no, we're going to go out everywhere and try to implement these principles proactively, whether we have a problem now or not. Now, obviously, the, the bottom line for any safety system is saving lives. Is there evidence so far that approaching safety from a safe system perspective can make a difference when it comes to saving lives? Well, I think there is. And I think one of the things that, that we need to point out that from the U.S. standpoint, what we're doing right now is, is not leading the world in safety. There are a number of countries that have a lower fatality rate per 100,000 population, even, even when you look at travel. Now, there's a lot of differences between the way we travel and the way they travel in Europe or uh, Japan or perhaps uh, Australia and New Zealand. But nonetheless, we are not the world's leaders. You've got Many countries, Sweden, Spain, the UK, France, Australia, Canada, Poland, Indonesia, that have uh, lower rates than we do. And about 24% of all fatal injuries are traffic-related in the United States, whereas about 9% are in Sweden. And Sweden is really sort of the place where the safe system concept originated and was implemented and has been in effect for many years. And they are the world leaders in traffic safety. They have the lowest rate. They have the lowest proportion of fatal injuries that are traffic related. They have about 2.8 fatalities, 100,000 population. And, you know, we're at 12. And there are a lot of countries ahead of us. And, you know, there are some where Mexico really has about the same rate for 100,000 population. Russia and China are behind us in this respect. So there's Places that they don't work. But if you look at places like Australia and Spain and the Netherlands and Sweden and Germany, where a safe system approach has really become ingrained into the way they look at traffic safety, they are amongst the lowest fatality rates and percentages in the world. So they're doing something right. And I think what we're doing is really not getting the results that we'd like to achieve in the United States. And I think it's time that we look at something new. You mentioned that Safe System acknowledges that there are going to be human errors when it comes to driving and traveling. 
a key component is anticipating that. What safe system practices can be used to anticipate and minimize the potential for human error? The first thing we want to do is build a system that reduces those opportunities. In other words, and a lot of that has to do with simplifying. And there's really four different approaches that we've identified as part of the safe system approach that is one, separating users in space, separating users in time, using strategies and treatments that increase attentiveness and awareness, and then finally simplifying the environment. Let me talk about first separating people in space. And this is one of those places where this is not new to transportation engineers, but we might not think of it in those terms because we've always been separating people in space. Let's put a left turn lane in, for example. So a left turn lane separates in space those people that have to stop and yield or slow down and yield to oncoming traffic from those people who can just proceed on on a roadway. And we've been putting in left turn lanes and improving safety for years now. And that's the same idea. But you, you would also apply that, let's say, to putting in sidewalks. Sidewalks is a separation in space of different users with different characteristics. So just as the left-turning vehicle and motorist has a different characteristic than the through motorist and vehicle, the pedestrian has different characteristics in terms of speed and tolerance to injury than a person in a vehicle does. So we separate them by sidewalks. And then bicycle paths or separate bike facilities along roadways are also examples of separating people in space. So first of all, let's get different users with different characteristics and different needs, and different injury tolerances separated. Sometimes we can't do that. We've got to share the same space. So one of the things we do is separate them in time. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, again, here's an example of something we've been doing for years. We would give an exclusive left turn phase to a left turning motorist. That means they've got that time to themselves to make that turn. They don't have to worry about anybody else doing it. All right. Now, people do mess up. They get hit when they've got protected left turns because somebody's making an error. So it's not foolproof. We recognize that even when we put in a protected left turn phase, we are not going to go to zero with left turn crashes, but we're going to minimize them probably. The way to do it in a safe system is the example of giving pedestrians an exclusive phase. We can't separate the pedestrian in space if they need to cross the road at grade. So now we say, well, maybe they shouldn't have to compete with any other traffic, and we're going to give them an exclusive pedestrian phase. This was called, sometimes called a scramble. Years ago in Denver, the traffic engineer was named Barnes, and it was called a Barnes dance. <laughs> and, you know, it's uh, ironic that Denver, that was well known for those things, I think took the last of those out just a few years ago. So they'll probably turn it around and put them back in because in the world, there may be no new ideas, just ideas <laughs> that become in vogue again. But, mm-hmm. So again, there's, there are these examples of separating people either in time or space that are pretty common traffic engineering approaches, but have been applied mostly in the vehicle realm. Now we need to carry them to all users. You were talking about what the difference in safe systems. You know, I went to school a long, long time ago, and we talked about pedestrians and bicycles even then and the need to do it. <laughs> so I, 
I don't feel like it's anything new. Maybe we forgot that along the way, but we need to look at that separation in time and space from the perspective of all the users of the transportation system, whether they're bicycles or on foot or they're transit or they're, because we're all one of those things almost every day, or we were before we got shut down here, but <laughs> someday we hope to be traveling. So, so those are those two things. Then the third principle or approach is attentiveness and awareness. And, and so what does that mean? Well, one of, it, one of them, an example might be visibility, to make people more aware because things are visible. You know, in the United States, 75% of our pedestrian fatalities occur at night. There has to be a component in there of not clearly seeing the hazard and picking up on it. So the things that we can do is make sure that we've got clear sight lines so that we don't have obstructions to pedestrians, either at night or in the day. We can illuminate at night so that the pedestrian is more visible. And I think it includes, and some people are going to disagree with me, that it includes reducing your risk as a user by putting on reflective clothing or having a reflective stripe or some kind of personal lighting device. I was on a college campus not Texas A&M, I will say, but one in Texas for a graduation last year, and it was extremely dark, and we were pedestrians walking from the parking lot. I had my uh, young grandson along, and I, I get real protective of him, and uh, I turned on the light on my phone just to make it visible, and it was amazing the reception that I got from motorists and acknowledgement and the fact that they could now see so I think that one of the things about safe systems that I think is important, it does not dismiss or say that you don't have some personal responsibility for acting as a good actor as part of being a user. It's not you can do anything you want to and the agencies and the transport systems have to come save you. You need to play your part, but we are recognizing and being very proactive and saying, even if you mess up, we're going to try to minimize your consequences. The second thing in attentiveness, I think, is, again, I can point to something that is very common, rumble strips. You've probably hit one on the side of a rural roadway, and we all have, and they're an attention-getting device. They have been exceptionally effective in reducing the amount of runoff the road. A very simple, cost-effective thing that brings our attention to the fact that we're deviating from the normal path and allows us to get back into it. In terms of pedestrians, some attention-getting devices that have found a lot of application in the U.S. are the rectangular rapid flashing beacons and the pedestrian hybrid beacon, which allows, brings attention to the fact that someone is crossing right there and helps people perform better. Finally, I think in terms of performance, what we're trying to do is limit the opportunity for mistakes by simplifying the environment. And let me give you a couple examples. There are some innovative intersection concepts. One's called the median U-turn and restricting crossing U-turn, sometimes called the mutts and the archives, since we get alphabet soup. But those are examples where the number of conflicts are reduced significantly by simplifying or changing the configuration, the physical configuration of an intersection is changed so that the number of potential conflict points, because every conflict point is an opportunity for a mistake. And if we take down the number of opportunities by simplifying 
that we're going to get less mistakes. And that's what we find that those are generally working better. One that's applicable to the pedestrian situation is what's been termed centerline hardening. And this has been used in New York City and Washington, D.C. And what it does is it sort of channelizes the motorist and the vehicles on left turns from turning wherever they want to in a very wide space to sort of narrowly confining them to a particular space. And there's some recent work by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, and I recommend that people go Google IIHS. Uh, They did a study in Washington, D.C., and they indicated that conflicts are reduced. And maybe even more importantly, and we're going to talk about speed in a moment, I know, but the average speed of turns was reduced and the amount and the percentage of people with higher speed turns was also decreased. So, so that's kind of a double whammy. And we can always simplify the environment by, but again, some of those restrict what you're able to do. Some of the criticisms of the median U-turn and restricted crossing U-turns is, well, I can't turn where I used, where I could before. And I don't like that. I want to go directly. I don't want to go out of my way to do that. And so, you know, as a society, we it's not just up to the traffic engineers. People have to embrace this and recognize that we've got to do a good job of selling why it is better. And there are some other advantages to the median uh, U-turn and, and restricted crossing U-turns. And we'll talk about a little bit later. But we've got to have people come with us because one of the complaints is I'm now restricted. I don't have as much freedom as I used to. And some of the safe system principles do restrict what you're able to as a user. You just touched on this about speed, and obviously lower speeds are going to lead to less serious injuries or perhaps not a fatal injury, one would hope. But what are ways to reduce speed and to mitigate the harmful effects of a crash? Yeah, first, Bernie, you're exactly right. You know, you would think that it would be obvious on the face of it that speed has a big impact on severity, but It's really dramatic because it's a power function. So that a 10% reduction in the speed of a in a vehicle crash is a a 38% reduction in the chance of fatalities and an even higher reduction in serious injuries. So it's very important to remember that. And this is is essential when talking about pedestrian and bicycle safety because of the tolerance of the humans for impact. You know, there's a 50% chance of injury at just over 30 miles per hour. It changes where the percentage then goes up. Once you reach 30 miles an hour, it's at least 50% chance of injury. And there's a 50% uh, risk of death at just 40 miles an hour. So speeds that we don't really consider to be high speed can still have serious consequences on pedestrians and bicycles. So it's just a matter of kinetic energy and its consequence. Speed management is an important component of a safe system approach. And I'll tell you, this is probably one of the biggest changes in philosophy and perhaps one of the biggest challenges that we have. Our current practice and the practice that we've had in the United States for many, many years is basically allows motorists to make the risk and speed calculus and judgment. And we measure that and then establish a statutory authority to sanction motorists to exceed a certain level. This is where the 85th percentile comes in. And we say the top 15% are going faster than they need to. We can sanction them. 
But still, speed limits are generally set by measuring what traffic is doing. And if motorists are choosing it, they're choosing it based on their perception of risk and mobility. And what it does not consider, our current one, is what is the impact of those decisions on other users? So the pedestrian and the bicyclist doesn't get a vote in setting an 85th percentile speed. And is that appropriate? I think a lot of people are coming to the conclusion that it is entirely reasonable to say there's a target speed that we can set or try to achieve that considers the consequences of kinetic energy on all the users. The challenge is, so I think most people have gotten to the point where they say, yeah, I understand, I can do a target speed. Now, as a municipal engineer for many years, I can tell you that if I could have gotten people to drive what I wanted them to, I, you know, probably have a statue somewhere. Uh, (laughs) There's a real difference between just setting and embracing the fact of a target speed and actually achieving it. And this is where the challenges are. And this, the challenge for our industry is how do we come up with a system or an approach that works? There are, there's no formula. There's no magic I don't know anyone that's got a book. Now, You can go to Sweden and they sit and they say, for this kind of environment, we don't want people to go past this speed. So there are, there is some guidance and they're certainly made some decisions. I can tell you that those speeds that they're targeting in Europe are well below the speeds most of us would think are the minimum speeds people will accept in the United States. That's a real challenge. I think there are real differences between people in Europe and people in the United States and even Australia and Japan. And, and we've got to find it. And we don't, have, we don't have this massive toolbox to achieve target speeds. And I think this is one of the places we need some more research. There are some lessons from some places. I can tell you I was at a session at TRB this past January, which seems somewhat like a year ago, <laughs> is that there was a person from Australia, and she was arguing that it has to be credible. In other words, You can't just put in an arbitrary speed where people don't recognize the need to slow down. What they found in Australia is if it's in an environment where they see, oh, there are a lot of pedestrians or there are kids or there's a park or there's whatever that environment, it's dense right here, I should slow down, they've had good compliance. Where they haven't, they've had a lot of public pushback, even Australia, and I think their safety culture is different than ours. I would say that Australians in general would probably embrace more safety culture than we do, particularly in traffic safety. But that shouldn't stop us from embracing this concept and working on ways to make it work. And some of the tools that we have are, as I mentioned before, the the actual physical configuration of the street, maybe less lanes. Most people that have done what are commonly called a road diet now generally say that limiting the number of lanes or eliminating lanes has slowed traffic. We can have narrower lanes. We can use close-in curbs, their medians, their even physical trees and hard surfaces and, and benches and that sort of thing. So there are people that believe that has an influence on speed. Parking, adjacent parking has an impact on speed. We can also use sanctions. Now, there you've got to have public acceptance. Whether you're doing in-person or, if I dare say, automated speed enforcement, which some people have called for, It's got to be accepted by the public in order to work. I think one place where ITE members can make a real difference is is looking at the 
feasibility and possibility of using coordinated signal timing, not only to move traffic in a smoother traffic flow, but also to achieve a target speed. And there are examples in time of people that that look to do that. And I think it's time to look at it again. There are some real challenges with that. But if we make the bargain with the public, look, I'm going to get you through smoothly on this signal system, but I'm not going to get you through smoothly at 50 miles an hour. I'm going to get you through smoothly at 25 miles an hour. Maybe we can have a pact, a compact with the public that means that we, we actually get slower speeds, but we have pretty good traffic flow. There are other ways to reduce those impact forces. And one is by separate. We talked about separating in space, but we could also separate them by a barrier. You can put parked cars in between pedestrians and the travel flow. Long, wider distances also could reduce impact forces. One of the important things, and I really like for transportation professionals to think about, is that it's been proven that the angle of impact also between vehicles also influences injury severity, with the 90 degree being the most severe in terms of an intersection. And so anything that can reduce that angle of impact is a positive in terms of reducing forces. So those innovative intersections designs that I was talking about, like the median U-turn, the R-cut, the diverging diamond, and displaced left turns, all serve to reduce the angles at which those impacts can occur. They do two things. One, they limit the number of conflict points. And secondly, they also diminish the angle at which they occur. And both of those are positive. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the trifecta of safe system design, which is the roundabout. Roundabouts fit within a safe system design like hand in a glove. They simplify the situation by reducing the number of conflict points. The impact speeds are lowered because people drive through roundabouts slower than traditional intersections, and they change the angle. They have a low angle, they have a low speed, and they've got a 75% reduction in conflict points. It's basically you get all the things in one design that's pretty simple to implement, particularly if we're just talking about a single lane roundabout. That's something that traffic engineers around the country, municipal traffic engineers in particular, have embraced and you're seeing much more of. It's part of our what has become our traditional toolkit, but it fits in the safe system. Hopefully we've managed to whet the appetite of some people who are listening to this who maybe were not terribly familiar with the safe system approach. What are some resources that you can point those folks to learn more about this? Well, Bernie, I don't think it's any accident that we're having this conversation right now because the May ITE Journal is focused on the safe system approach, and it has articles about speed management, pedestrian and bicycle safety, intersection design, as well as this sort of overall introduction to the safe system framework. So there's a very good timing. I don't think it's by accident, but um, I think we'll take advantage of it. So I, I encourage our listeners to look at the May ITE Journal. Additionally, you can look up the safe system under the topic section in the technical resources on the ITE website. So if you go to ITE, look at technical resources, go to topics and select safe system, you can find the explanation that was developed as part of the Road to Zero Committee, as well as the framework of which I've help develop and have based a lot of my answers on today. So there's some more 
information on the IT website. In addition to specifically about safe systems, I'd like to point out that the transportation safety section of the technical resources has the safety resources toolbox. And that toolbox is searchable by topic, including safe system, by the way. And it has hundreds of links to resources available on the web. So rather than documents in there, it points you somewhere else. There's a wealth of information about safety and not just safe system, but some of the more traditional things and other ways to do it. Because I'm not, I don't want to downplay still finding places that have problems and going to fix them. That's certainly part of a safe system, too. Finally, I'd just like to point out that the Road to Zero Coalition, which is led by the National Safety Council, but includes many of the federal agencies and people across the country that have come together in this coalition, has embraced the safe system approach. It's one of their, the legs of the pillars that they're counting on to try to improve safety on our road to zero. And I think that's a good place to look up and perhaps even join the coalition because there are regular meetings. There's a lot of notification about upcoming webinars and that sort of thing. So I think those things between ITE and this road to zero, I think we've got, there's a lot of good stuff out there. And then again, you know, there's Google and you can go out there and find out what the, what the Swedes are doing and what they're doing in Germany and Australia and see if you can apply some of those same things to what you're doing. And to wrap things up, What's your advice to a transportation professional on the first steps they should take to begin implementing a safe system approach in their jurisdiction? Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that what we're talking about is not some radically different imported from outside the U.S. system that doesn't work here. What I've been able to point out and one of the things that I'm anxious to do is sort of demystify this and say, what are real world examples? And I, I tried to give some today. And then a lot of the things that we've been doing really fit into that safe system. I think it's trying to package those things comprehensively. And I think it's trying to change your viewpoint. Being proactive and looking at those three principles. We want to design and operate the system for reduce the chance of error. We want to mitigate the consequences when the inevitable errors occur. If we look at the situation from that perspective and embrace that, then I think we can look at our vast experience and expertise to put things into place that do those. I think that we're going to try to make decisions with the impacts on all users. We're going to put safety first. We're going to recognize that some throughput may be diminished. We're going to recognize that we may have to limit some choices. We may not want to get too far ahead of the public. I think there's some PR work. I think the thing that I would like for transportation professionals in the United States to do is familiarize yourself with the framework of it. Start thinking about safety a little differently than we have in the past. Use the principles to make things better and keep everybody safe when they arrive at their destination. Well, you've been listening to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast. Our guest this month, Robert Wunderlich. He's the director of the Center for Transportation Safety at Texas A&M Transportation Institute. Robert, thanks so much for sharing your expertise and your time with us today. Thanks, Bernie. It's been a real pleasure, and I, I hope everyone will take advantage of 
of the safe system approach and start learning about it and putting it into place in the U.S. 